If you could choose three or four things that you would like to see in your church, what would it be? Would it be sound doctrine? Maybe it would be uh, godly leaders. What would it be? What would you choose? What would be the essentials that you think we would need in order for this church to survive and thrive? What about church unity? Do you think church unity is important? Do you think unity in the church is vitally important? I believe it is. The New Testament also uh, teaches that and believed it. Paul, the apostle, was the uh, he was the spiritual father to many of these churches that he started in Corinth and Thessalonica and Ephesus. Even Philippi, no church, I believe, was, was no, uh, was so dear to him, to the heart of Paul, than the, than the Philippian church. And it's this where we're going to take our study from this morning. In, in modern days today, church, uh, Paul would have been the modern day church planter. He was the planter of many of these churches. And, and it's, a ch- it's a challenge when you are starting out with these churches as groups or as a plant. I mean, we, we here right now are a church plant. If you ask the tech team, Heath and Andrew, and ask them what are the challenges, the challenges of a church plant is, is hiring a building, not having your own building, where they come in every Friday night to, to set up and every Sabbath afternoon to, to pack up, and they do this week in and week out, the time, the energy that it takes to set up uh, for what we have here can be quite a challenge when it's not our own building. It's a challenge for Pastor Lloyd, it's a challenge for myself and, and for those on the committee to, to, to locate a, a, a premises, a building to, to call our own. But I love, I love church plants. It lets us know that we are starting a church in areas that are unentered, where it needs the presence of Christians who are willing to follow Jesus Christ. And, and Paul himself met many of these challenges, especially when he was uh, starting out in Philippi, the church of the Philippian church. And we read about it in Acts chapter 16. I invite you to turn there uh, to Acts chapter 16 this morning. This is where we read of the Philippian church in its infancy. And there in Acts chapter 16, we know that Paul had received a vision. It was the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call. Where was Macedonia? Macedonia is in uh, the northern part of Greece. And uh, right there in, in that area, that region, is Philippi. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes we wonder, when is it or, or how is it that God is going to call us into service? How is God going to call me into ministry? And often God has called people into, in, into service when they are taken into captivity or whether they are sitting in, in prison. Or whether they're sitting in the belly of a whale, God works in mysterious ways. And I would encourage you not to just sit by the telephone waiting for that call. It may be that God has another, another way of calling you into service. It may be through hearing a sermon or, or even through the, the voice of a child 
God may be calling you when you're on a family holiday. He may be calling you when you are financially bankrupt or or, or if you are the richest person in Australia. God may call you into service. Paul was called into service by way of of his Damascus, the, the road to Damascus experience where he literally heard the voice of Jesus. That was the only way that God was going to communicate with Paul and swing him around 180 degrees. Here, he was called into service for the church of Philippi to start a church in Philippi, I should say, by way of a vision. And there in chapter 16, it was a dream start. Now, I have some slides um, of Philippi and my recent travels to the Holy Lands. Can we have one of those slides up there now? Here is uh, Paul in, in Acts chapter 16. At, he was over in Troas when God had called him over to Macedonia. He responded immediately to that call, gets on a ship, and he came down to this place that's on screen. Is the, uh, it was Neapolis. And uh, if you look at Neapolis there, it's quite a, a thriving city. A thriving town. Uh, next slide shows us where the where it was the possible port, very much the likely where Paul had um, arrived in the Apollos, and Philippi was just a short distance from this city of Neapolis. You notice there on the next slide, there is the reconstruction of the ancient ruins of Philippi. They are uh, erecting some of these old columns. Uh, as you know, that Philippi experienced some um, uh, earthquakes. They still experience earth tremors today where much of uh, what was the old city uh, lays in ruins today. And there is just some of them. Let's, slide, let's just look at the... Um, uh, the oh, here, this is interesting. Notice that that is the public toilets. Public toilets. There's no dividers there, ladies and gentlemen. These were the public toilets for the, for the men and women. It's for all to use. Next slide shows us that this is where Lydia, I'm going to just speak a little bit about Lydia in a moment, where she was converted and baptized. This was just outside the ancient city of Philippi, where Lydia was baptized by Paul. It was there that we just sat. They've obviously created a, a nice little meeting place where uh, we can sit down, and, and our group leader at the time gave us a splendid message on Acts chapter 16, talking about the conversion of Lydia, and this is where um, the this, this place was. Next slide. Just another um, uh, part of where this river flowed into. Uh, perhaps this is uh, where, where they've built that little auditorium is where they believe Lydia was exactly baptized because it was a deeper part of the, of the, uh, the river there. Now, the next slide shows us the, uh, the jail. Remember the Philippian jail. Uh, where the earthquake took place, he was going to take his life, and Paul said, don't do it, we're all here, nobody has escaped. This is where many of the historians believe this was the prison, because often in Philippi and some of these other towns of that time, they would have the prison just outside of the city. They would not put it into the city, and um, this is where they believe Paul and Silas were kept in prison. Of course, there's no roof on it anymore, and um, much of the earth has, has um, filled in or caved in. But uh, this is where they believed Paul and Silas were imprisoned. All right. So Acts chapter 16, 
we find that Paul has a dream start to his ministry of church planting. It would be the dream start for any minister to um, enter into a town, uh, witness to a lady or to a person. They believed the words, they believed the message that was spoken, and she, a seller of purple cloth, was converted and baptized. Great start. They began, I assume, to go house to house, as Paul often did. He began to start preaching uh, publicly to the people of Philippi. Philippi was was a um, a town full of Gentiles, and incidentally, Philippi is named after the Macedonian king, King Philip, who was the father of uh, Alexander the Great. So that's where it, it originated its name from, or got its name from. And so here he was going from town to town, house to house, preaching the word of God, and Lo and behold, who is, who is there to greet him? Who is there to meet him? Notice the Bible says in chapter 16 and verse 16, it says that it came to pass as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us. Let me tell you, friends, whenever God calls you into service, wherever you start your church plant, wherever you, whenever you decide that you're going to turn, make changes in your life and serve Jesus Christ, the devil will always be there to meet you. And he doesn't care how he does it, who he uses or what he does to get there. He will meet you. In this case, it was a young lady, a young damsel, a young woman who met Paul and Silas. Alongside with Paul and Silas was Luke and Timothy. There were four of them uh, that had began this church plant in Philippi. And this young lady comes there to meet them. The devil will always meet you head on. When you want to do service for the Lord, she brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. She was a fortune teller. She, she made money for, for her masters, for her boss. And verse 17 says that the girl followed Paul and us. In the Greek, that word followed means to follow closely. When you're in the service for the Lord, the devil will not only meet you front on, he will get you from behind. He will follow you around like a bad smell. He will be in front of you. He will be behind you. He will be around you. And this lady, this young damsel, she cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. It's ironic and it may surprise you that the devil will always speak truth. But he's very good at mixing error with it. And he will state the facts. Here, in this case, it was a fact. It was the truth. These men were the servants of the Most High God who proclaimed to the people the way of salvation. It was a fact. You cannot deny that. Incidentally, the pagans, the heathens, they always looked at their gods as the way of salvation too. And she proclaimed... She shouted out that these men were the servants of the Most High God. These men will show you the way of of salvation. As true as it was. I don't care if you are the most passive Christian in this auditorium today. 
Sooner or later, you're going to do one of two things when somebody follows you around and proclaims and shouts out the top of their voice the truth about what you are doing. You will do one of two things. You'll either get sick of them and crack it with them, or you're going to get up and leave that fellowship group. For example, if somebody came in here today and was always following you around, proclaiming the truth, saying this is the right church or, or, or and, and this is the way of salvation, or if they were talking to Pastor Lloyd and saying, come and listen to what Pastor Lloyd says, or come and see what Pastor Duane has to say, because what they are preaching is the truth and it will lead you to salvation. You will get sick of it. And this she did many days in verse 18. She didn't do it for an hour. She didn't follow them around for five hours. She didn't even follow them for a day. The Bible says that she followed Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy constantly for many days. It got to the point where where Paul, greatly annoyed, turns and says to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Even Paul got jack of her. That teaches me that you and I must always be on our guard when church is going well, when Bible study groups are thriving, when pathfinders are healthy and vibrant, when young people are leading out in Sabbath school classes, when people are joining the church from the community because Satan hates a church that is on fire for God. But never forget the power of God is much more powerful than the power of the devil. Never forget that. God defeated Satan in heaven. He defeated Satan in the wilderness. He defeated Satan on the cross of Calvary. And he will defeat Satan in the battle of Armageddon. Now, Paul and Silas, Timothy and Luke thought that their troubles were over when the Spirit had left the woman. They thought, thank goodness she's not following us around anymore. Thank goodness she's back in her right mind. Little did they know that more trouble was yet to come because as soon as she was in her right mind, all of a sudden the prophets, the money, were not coming into her masters. The masters get upset, so they turn the entire town against these young men. Not only was the town against them, but the magistrates, the leaders of this town turned also against them. They were seen as troublers of the peace. And so what they do? Well, they gave them a good hiding. That's what they did. Notice what the Bible says in verse 23. And when they had laid many stripes upon them. You see, these guys, they got a good whipping before they were thrown into prison. They laid many stripes upon them and cast them into prison. Now, part of my role as a minister is that I attend on an annual basis, I attend all the prisons in the state of New South Wales to visit inmates. There's around 30 prisons in the state. I haven't even made it to all of them yet, but I've at least done over half. Now, let me say this. Sitting in prison is never a good thing, is it? 
Sitting behind bars is not the best way to live your life. But in comparison to some of the jails or the prisons in the world, the Australian Correctional Service Centres are not too bad. I've seen it with my own eyes. And what do I see, Dwayne? Well, when I go into these prisons, I see that they have rehab centres. I see that they have football fields. They have television sets. They even have toasties to make their toast. And some of these prisons, they have uh, table tennis sets. Some of them uh, have have works or uh, places of employment. And all of them get three meals a day. It's not too bad. It was very different to the prison that Paul and Silas had just been thrown into. The Bible says that before they even get into prison, they'd been given a good whipping. And those whips, those they had, they had uh, lead bits tied to the end of these lashes. And so they had open wounds that were taken out of their backs. Verse 24, the jailer receives them, such charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. Not only had they been whipped, not only had they been thrown into prison, but now their feet were fastened into stocks. What stocks? Stocks are made out of timber. And, and, and the same timber that, that was used to make these stocks, they used to make crosses. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you need to bend down, pick up your cross and follow me. Here I see some similarities. I see a type of Christ with with Paul and Silas and Jesus Christ. Both were whipped. Both were given a hiding. Both, well, at least these guys, they were cast into the heart of the prison. Jesus was cast into the heart of the earth. Both were fastened to timber. It's interesting to note that Silas means a dweller of wood. Well, he was dwelling with wood that day. He was dwelling with wood or timber that day. And then at midnight in verse 25, the Bible says that Paul and Silas prayed and they sang songs unto God. Now, I don't know about you. I don't mind singing songs in the shower. And I don't even mind singing songs when I'm traveling in the car with my air conditioner on, uh, if it's, if it's hot or with my heater going when it's cold. I love singing songs sitting in church and I enjoy singing songs in small groups. That I do enjoy. As I mentioned before, one of the greatest blessings coming to this church is to, is to engage with the song service and our worship team leaders or sing, sing song leaders, uh, and, and, and give praises to God. But in prison, when you've just been given a hiding, when your feet are fastened in stocks, I mean, think about it. Paul and Silas thrown into the depths, into the heart of the prison, and here's Paul and and Silas laying flat on their backs, I guess, uh, with their feet fastened in stocks. And Paul says, Hey, Silas. Yeah, Paul. You want to sing some songs? I was just thinking the same. What what did you have in mind? I don't know. Joy to the world? Oh, happy days? You know, it's amazing. It's amazing what these guys went through. These guys sung songs in prison 
because they were happy being in service for Jesus Christ. At least 16 times in the letter of Philippians, you will see the words joy and rejoice. You know, there are pastors in this conference that are working hard starting up church plants. I think there's at least 10 to 15 that they're trying to get started at the moment. In areas of Sydney that have not really been entered. In areas of Sydney that have not got Adventist presence. I wonder how many of us pastors would be willing to still start church plants if these areas were as hostile as what Paul and Silas had had to work through. It makes me wonder. Luke and Timothy, Paul and Silas. And and, and you wonder, where, where was Luke and Timothy? Why didn't they get uh, whipped? Why weren't they thrown into prison? Well, Luke and Timothy were Gentiles. They looked like Gentiles. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, were Jews, and they looked like Jews. And, and Philippi was a, was a Gentile town. They didn't like Jews. They didn't have much time for these guys. Uh, discrimination, I would say, was strong back then as it is today within and without the church, outside of the church. You know, uh, Paul was no armchair Christian. He wrote in the heat of battle. He knows what it's like uh, to stand alone. He knows what, what, what it's like when friends turn their back on him. He knows what it's like to be cold. He knows what it's like to go hungry. He knows how convincing sometimes Satan's lies are, but still this man lives in joy. This is not a a paste a smile on your face kind of joy, nor is it an always feel happy kind of joy. Paul often often, um, called himself a servant in chains. He referred to himself a servant as as a, or a bond servant. Why? Because he wrote most of his epistles, he wrote most of his letters sitting in prison. Fast forward 10 years, the year is 60 AD. The church of Philippi was started in 50 AD. Paul is sitting in a prison under house arrest somewhere in Rome. Thinking of Philippi, nothing was more dear to him than the Philippian church. Nothing was more dear to him than to see unity amongst the brethren there in Philippi. Luke was their pastor, incidentally. He was pastor for that church for the first six years. And it's believed by many historians that this was actually his birthplace. Not only was Luke there, but the young intern, Timothy. So this church had a great start in the church plant itself. There was power. There was power from these preachers. They were on fire. They were a faithful group. They they were a group that had lots of fellowship. They were a group that spent much time in prayer. And as a result, they experienced church growth. But Paul... He wanted to ensure that there was church unity. He said it to the Corinthians, don't forget, where he said, let no divisions come among you. He said it down there to the Ephesians. He said, endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Philippi was a mission-minded church. It was morally pure, but Paul was concerned about disunity amongst some of the members. 
Where do we see evidence of this? Philippians chapter 4. I invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. Notice there in verse 1 and 2. Philippians 4 verse 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Verse 2, I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. You see, there was a problem and, and Paul could see it even from Rome. One of the church members came up and spoke to him and, and he spoke his concerns to Paul about what was going on there in Philippi. So Paul writes this letter, especially for the church at Philippi, and he says, I sense that there is some trouble. I sense that Judea and Syntyche, Mrs. Judea and Mrs. Syntyche, aren't getting along. They're church members, but they just cannot get along with each other. What it was, I don't know. Maybe it was jealousy. Maybe it was some hurtful words. Maybe there was some hurt feelings. I'm not sure. But I do know that there was, there was disunity amongst these two. And it sometimes happened. I mean, just go away with friends sometimes. Have you ever been away with good friends? And after two or three days, you start realizing that this was not a good idea. And, and it stretched your friendship. It's put, put, um, a little tension in the air. Have you ever had that experience? And you could not wait until that holiday was over. You think, well, never again will I go away with that family. One poet says, to live above with the saints is glory, glory. But to live below with the saints we know, now that's a different story. <laughs> These two had a relational problem and Paul addressed it. Why did he address it? It was only between those two because Paul could see that if there was discord amongst two, it threatened the entire unity of the church. First evidence is found in chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1 and 2. The Bible says, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercy, fulfill ye my joy. Now notice what he says, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Paul said that there would be nothing that would make them more happier than to see church members getting along. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. Have you ever met Christians that are the happiest people you've ever met? I do. I've met, I've met Catholics. I've met Baptists. And they are so happy. They are so happy. In fact, I'm going to say that uh, that young guy uh, here, Joseph, what do we call him, Jomo? Okay, that guy, when I, ever since I met him, which only a few months ago, he is always happy. The guy's just, he's just a walking smile. I reckon that guy, he could be in the, in the heat of an argument and he'd still have a smile from ear to ear. He, he's just a happy sort of a guy. Sometimes you want to see if he can turn his happy off, just to see if he actually has, uh, has no smile at all. He's a happy Christian. And when you get people like this, it makes you want to be happy. And you, you say to yourself, I want more about what that person is. I want more of what he has got or what she has got. 
How important is it, my friends, to have church unity? How important is it to ensure that we are of one accord, that we have one mind? Well, I know that God commands it. Jesus desires it. In fact, he died on the cross just so that we could be one, one in mind and one in unity. The Holy Spirit wills it that you and I have fellowship one with another. Why is it important, my friends? Why? Because in verse 5, notice uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, the Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's how important it is. He's saying, Jesus had this mind. I want you to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus himself. Now compare this. If we're talking about unity today, what is the opposite of unity? Disunity, okay? Disunity. So look at the comparisons. Unity pleases God. Therefore, disunity pleases Satan. Unity glorifies God. Disunity glorifies Satan. Unity, unity helps us to be a credible witness in our community. Disunity, simply put, discredits us. How can you and I have a genuine gospel relationship with Jesus Christ and others if we are not willing to walk in unity towards the brethren. Notice what the psalmist says in uh, in Psalms 133 and verse 1. Psalms 133 verse 1. The Bible says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? In unity. Verse 2. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. Now, who was Aaron? Well, Aaron was a priest. In fact, he was the first priest set aside for the, as a minister to the sanctuary. That's who Aaron was. So Aaron was, was to be consecrated and sanctified. Big word simply meant to be set apart for the gospel ministry. And how was he consecrated? How was he set apart for the work? Well, he had the oil that ran down from head to toe. What does the oil represent? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. So here he did. He had the Holy Spirit. What the psalmist is saying is that um, consecration and sanctification... And the ongoing of the work of the Holy Spirit is what it takes to, 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 for a church to walk together in unity. Verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commands the blessing, life forevermore. So what, what did the dew represent? The dew represents a daily fresh Life. Have you ever seen freshly mowed lawns? Beautiful, nice cut lawns, and then you drive past and you or you walk past and you just see the dew that is over that lawn. What does it look like? It looks fresh. Sometimes it makes you just want to go and walk all over it and roll around it and get amongst it all. It's just a fresh looking lawn. You even get up in the mornings, open your blinds, just stand there in awe. 
at your freshly cut grass. You say, man, how tidy does this look? How good does it look when you've got the dew of, of, of the ground that is sitting and resting upon that grass? Psalmist is saying that when there is unity among the brethren, it is refreshing to the church's relationship. Paul calls for this. And my question is, what then is the basis? What is the basis for church unity? Is it, is it the doctrines of the second coming? Is it, is it a sermon on, on, uh, the Sabbath? Is it baptism by immersion? What is it? What is the basis for church unity? Is it, is it voting for the Labour Party and not the Liberals or vice versa? Is it homeschooling? Is it whether you eat cheese or not? What is the basis for church unity? Now, all that is very, very important. But what is the basis? I have a, a, a quote from the servant of the Lord. The cause of division and discord in families and in the church is, that word is, is a defining word. Now she's going to define for us what causes division and discord in the church and in the family. What is it? It is separation from Christ. It is separation from Christ. To come near to Christ is to come near to one another. If you want unity in this church, then we have to think about coming nearer to Jesus Christ. The secret of true unity in the church and in the family is not diplomacy, not management, not a superhuman effort to overcome difficulties, though there will be much of this to do. But what, friends? But union with Christ. Union with Christ. Picture a large circle from the edge of which are many lines all running to the center. The nearer these lines are, uh, lines approach to the center, the nearer they are to one another. Thus it is in the Christian life. The closer we come to Christ, the nearer we shall be one to another. God is glorified as his people unite in harmonious action. So the question then is, How do we come nearer to Christ? Notice what he said in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit. You notice what the disciples were like before Jesus ascended? Man, did they have some arguments. The disciples, they had a measure of the Holy Spirit. They were working with Christ. They had three and a half years with Christ, but they just didn't get it right. They just didn't click. They were arguing amongst themselves. Some of them said, hey, look, who's going to be sitting at your right hand? Who's going to be sitting on your left hand? Uh, they were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Even Judas, he didn't, he didn't get his act together and he lost out on eternal life. And it wasn't until Jesus Christ had gone back to heaven, the Bible says, as Claire has just pointed out in Acts chapter 2, as they were sitting there, they, uh, they, they were there, 
And it was the first time that they, the Bible says, they were of one accord. They were of one mind. Why? Because they were reminiscing about all the things that God had done with them and for them. And then the Holy Spirit came down upon them. Let's call that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And my, 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 what a mighty powerhouse of preachers we got after the day of Pentecost or at the day of Pentecost. These guys forgot self and they were completely filled with the Holy Spirit. Bowels and mercies, the Bible says there in verses 1 and 2. Well, verse 1. Now, bowels is not really an elegant word. What is that really saying? It's saying, it's talking about the internal organs of the body, especially the heart. Especially the heart. And this is what they were saying, that your heart needs to be in communion with Christ. If it is in communion with Christ then and, and in fellowship with the Spirit, then what God gives to you will be then shared amongst others. Affection. God gives us affection, we give affection. God gives us sympathy, we are sympathetic towards others. God gives us mercy, we then will show mercy to others. The Holy Spirit is the one that will produce in you and I a regenerate heart of true affection from God to us. And when that happens, it goes from us to others. There's your vertical and your horizontal relationship between God and man. The cross is seen in the lives of those who profess to be Christians. Now that poses a question of conscience. And it is a question of conscience. Listen to me carefully. Is my relationship with and well with everybody in the church? Is my relationship right and well with those in the church? Is there anyone that you avoid at church? Is there anybody that you avoid at the conference-wide state rallies? What about those big camp meetings? What about when you're shopping down in the aisle and you see somebody that you don't really want to talk to, so you turn your back and you go down the other aisle? We cannot worship with We cannot fellowship with, we cannot walk with and please God if we have broken relationships in the church and with some of his children. You cannot do it. And you know what the problem is, my friends? The problem is humanity. The problem is with us. Because we have an unforgiving spirit. We have a judging heart. We are harsh. We hold grudges. We have a negative attitude. That is the problem with many of God's people. And so what we or what are we doing to hindrance unity? And think about the problems that they were having in Phil- uh, the church of Philippi. I mean, it was a thriving church, but disunity un- was coming in amongst the church. Verse 3, Paul gives us the answer. Chapter 2 and verse 3, let nothing be done. Now he's addressing the church, but I believe, even though he, he addressed it 2,000 years ago, it is a message that is live and well for the church today. And he says, let nothing be done through a selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition. My version says strife, but that's exactly what it means. Selfish ambition or conceit. My version is vainglory. 
empty opinions, saying things that you ought not to be saying, saying things that, that, that aren't worth speaking about. What are the hindrances in our church? Is it rivalry? Is it fleshly competition? Is it pride or is it arrogance? The problem with these traits, I'll tell you what, the problem with these, these traits, and we all know it too well, we've been there and done that. The problem is, is that it starts out very subtle and then it leads to nitpicking and then it follows on from nitpicking to gossip. And then it ends up in little clicks. And then you have your little groups. Proverbs chapter 6, God talks about six things that he hates. No, let's make that seven, he says. And verse 19, what does he say? He says, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among the brethren. You see, churches who get along well, and they worship together, they Bible study together, they even pray with each other. Sometimes they're going to irritate each other. Sometimes these churches are going to get on each other's nerves. Unfortunately, these people that get on our nerves, these people that irritate us, they're not as sanctified as you are. They're not as holy as we are. And so we form our little groups. When that happens, we're simply giving up our spiritual minds and accepting our carnal ones instead. Paul is simply calling us to a higher way of behavior that is like Jesus. And this is what Paul was addressing to the church of Philippi. He says, be of one mind, be of one accord, be in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Let your heart be in connection with God. Let go of the flesh spoken in Galatians 5 because it manifests discord, selfish ambition, factions and jealousy. And this has destroyed the best of churches. Make sure, my friends, make sure that it does not destroy yours. A divisive person is a person who lacks the Holy Spirit. Think about it. A divisive person is a person who lacks the Holy Spirit. They can be gifted. They can be knowledgeable. They can be respected persons of society. They can even show outward moral mor morality. But a divisive person is a person who seeks self-ambitions and speaks empty words. And none of these will ever edify the church. None of them. I'm not preaching this today because we have disunity. Far from it. I'm preaching this today because the churches that have the most love, the churches that have the most unity anywhere are always a candidate for disunity to show up. It is only ever around the corner. Sowing discord among the brethren is just around the corner. It will come in front of you it will follow you. It will be all around you. Because the devil hates a church that is on fire for Jesus Christ. 
Quite often it starts out a small thing. Maybe it's a slight disagreement or someone takes it the wrong way. And this is why Paul wrote the letter there to the Philippian church. And it's relevant, I believe, for you and I in the 21st century. So the question then remains as we wrap this up. How then? How? How can division be avoided? What then is every Christian to do? You see, preserving church unity is not the work of the church pastor. It is not the work of Pastor Lloyd. It is not the work of Pastor Dwayne. It is not the work of the elders, nor is it the work of the deacons. It is not even the work of the church leaders. To preserve unity in the church is the work of every member that comes to this church. How? How can we preserve unity in New Hope Church? We have a great group. We have great unity. We have great fellowship. We've got small groups starting in a few weeks. We've got a thriving, uh, we've got a, a pathfinders that's about to thrive and start. Everything's going well. We have young people in the church leading out. We have people from our community. Things could not be better. And I praise God. I praise God that we have this church here established in Quakers Hill. But how can we preserve the unity that God has given to us? A, I'm going to be very quick and very direct. You and I need to have the right spirit and a good attitude. Remember that. You and I must never repeat gossip or slander. We must never enter into controversy that's critical or detrimental. And don't let anything come between you and your love for others. Watch for division and be proactive in killing it, my friends. Just like Nehemiah had to do when he was rebuilding the walls of Jeremiah and his friends. They had to be proactive. They 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 had a trowel in one hand and they had a sword in the other to keep the, the troublemakers away. They had to. They had no choice but to keep unity amongst the brethren in order to finish the walls of Jerusalem. And you and I need to put up those barriers. We need to keep those walls up to, to and be proactive in keeping people who want to bring discord and disunity among the, 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 the brethren. Watch for division. Have you got any scripture for that, Dwayne? Can you back it up with scripture? Yes, I can. Romans chapter 16 and verse 17. Notice what the Bible says. Now I urge you, says Paul, I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses. My version says, mark them. Watch out for them. I know it sounds cruel. But the Bible says, watch them. Take note of those who cause divisions and offences, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and what? Avoid them. A divisive person always has a selfish personal agenda, my friends. They are always pushing this or that. They want their own way. You and I know these kinds of people, and sometimes the problem is with us. And we got to think twice about what are the motives? Why is it that I want something to go this direction and that, di- that direction? Is it a personal agenda? They don't care about what's best for the church. They want their way. Paul says, mark them. 
Watch out for them, take note of them and avoid them. Do you know why, friends? It's simple. Because these people do not serve Christ. And they are warped in their thinking. If every church member follows instructions, disunity would not be found among the brethren. Now, let me make this clear. Is that when there is a problem, you just don't get that person by the scruff of the neck and say, out you go, because you don't believe what I believe. You don't do that. You follow Matthew chapter 18. You go to that brother and you chat with him in a Christian-like manner. You pray with them. And if they still won't listen, if they still want their own way, then you get the elders and the pastor. And if they still don't want to, want to follow the line or, or, or stay in unity, then you get the church uh, business or the board meeting together. And after all you've done to win and woe that person back into the love of Jesus, back into the church, back into a, a spirit of unity, when all that's said and done and they choose still not to do it, then let them go. Avoid them. My friends, protect the loving unity of this church at all costs. We go to drastic measures to protect our children. We even have uh, drop banners to protect our children. We have meetings to protect our children. We're going to get police checks to protect our children. How about we put as much effort and as much zeal into protecting the unity in the body of the church? It may not be anything more important in a local church than true, loving unity. Why? Because you can be as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but if you are not united in the mind, if you are not of one accord, what's the point? Make sure, my friends, that we preserve unity. Protect it. Maintain it. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Amen. Amen. 